the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, it's Wine Women Radio Hour. I'm Marcia Maycumber. I'm here today with Misty Rodebush Kane. Hello, Misty. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Woo! Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we're back with another episode and another fantastic guest. Uh, and I'm really excited because our guest is a specialist in champagne. And every time I've talked to her over the last, I think it's been at least five, six years that we've known each other, I learn something new about champagne and bubbles. And that's not the only certification she has. She has a lot of other certifications. She's a great wine educator. So I was really looking forward to this. On top of that, she's also on the board of the directors for Wine Women, our parent organization that helps to sponsor our very existence here as a podcast and radio show. So it's really great to hear um, from somebody directly on the board what's happening there as well. We're going to cut straight to the chase right now. Our guest today is Sylvie Tenhauser, a bilingual wine and hospitality professional hailing from the French Caribbean. She's got more than 10 years of experience creating memorable wine experiences for clients all over the world. She began her career at the French tourist office. And this led her onto a very adventurous career path, organizing high-end wine tasting and designing wine tours and providing sommelier services to wine enthusiasts and collectors in Europe, the Caribbean, and of course, here in our own backyard in the United States. She's held several positions in luxury hospitality and wine industries before relocating right here to Napa Valley. And she's had the opportunity to work with prestigious wineries such as Dalaval Vineyards, Charles Krug Winery, Vintners Collective, John Anthony, Peju Provence Winery, and Domaine, uh, Domaine Carneros, pardon, Right now, she's working at Cake Bread Cellars as their assistant guest experience manager. She's also been awarded the prestigious title of wine and culinary travel advisor by American Express Travel for her expertise in the industry and culinary travel and all those good things. Currently pursuing her certified wine educator designation through the Society of Wine Educators. She's also graduated from the L'Ecole Supérieure de Commerce in France, where she has a degree in, are you ready for this, Misty? Global Communication Strategy to teach us, undoubtedly. Great. There's a a political call coming through on my phone that I can't get rid of, but just ignore that. It will go away. The first I want to say cheers and welcome to the show, Sylvie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Sylvie. I know we've been talking about it for a while and trying to figure out when we could get it to happen. And there's been all kinds of things going on. And finally, we're getting to it. And you suggested to us that um, for our our champagne education tonight, uh, we give a whirl with this uh, lovely Pomeroy. Tell us about, why don't we, should we start there a little bit and then we can backtrack to your uh, background? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the Pomeroy. Well, um, the Pomeroy, I chose it because that was the first bottle I bought when I, with my first job. So it was an adult and that was the first bottle I could afford. So it wow. has a special memory for me. <laughs> My first bottle of champagne was a Pomeroy um, bottle. And um, what I like about this is that the story behind that champagne is the owner, Louise Pomeroy. She was a woman who took a lot of chances in a man world because back then um, in the 1800s, it was the men who um, was um, you know, taking care of all the champagne houses, being the head of the companies. But after the death of her husband in 1858, she took over the business and started creating champagne. 
Oh. Oh, yes. Sure. I feel really honored that you, you know, you chose to share with us this special memory of yours. Yeah. It's very, it's very lovely. It's obviously a beautiful bottle. We'll, we'll be sure to put pictures up um, on the webpage that accompanies this. We can see a little bit of it in the corner of Misty's uh, screen there for those who might get to see it that way. Um, I, I had forgotten that story about Louise um, and she follows in the footsteps of other great women in Champagne like Madame Clicquot. Yes, indeed. Um, so she was another one who was great in there. Um, as you know, I poured this in two different glasses to see how differently it behaved. Tell us about some of your preferences and what you think is going to be different in these two glasses that I've got here. Absolutely. Well, the Pinot glass, like you call it, um, that you have there, you see it's a little bit concave and it's smaller to the top. What that does is that it allows you to have um, to smell more aromas, whereas the flute is more festive and it helps um, the bubbles it to um, you know to show itself. So you see more bubbles; it's more festive with the um, with the flute. Whereas a more wine glass form, it helps you to um, get all get the uh, aromas from the champagne. That's so funny that you should mention that. I just. Um... You know, I don't know if any of you ladies are um, Sex in the City fans, but I was um, in my 20s and I was such a huge Sex in the City fan that um, at the time, you know, it wasn't available on everyone's TV. So we had to meet at our local wine shop to actually um, be able to watch Sex in the City each week in the town oh of Chicago. Gosh. And um, there is a Netflix comedy that a romantic type of comedy that just was put out called um, Emily in Paris. And yes. they just explained um, in one of the episodes, you know, the differences between the nuances you can pull out from a coupe and versus a flute. So that's very time fitting with that just coming out um, in yeah. Netflix. Yes, and I love, um, if you're gonna go with a champagne that's much older, this um, Good Royale is young, vivacious, but if you go with a vintage champagne, like say the Cuvée Louise and everything, I would suggest pouring it in a more um, wine glass type. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I, I love it. Flute. Yeah. And um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're pulling out of this wine? Like I'm loving this champagne, it's fantastic. Yeah. You know what, if you look at the bubbles, you see how um, how vivid they are, lively bubbles they are? That gives a lot of citrusy. It's just a really refreshing, crisp champagne. What I do get, however, I do get a lot of chalk, minerality, you know, because the, um, the soil in Champagne is very, have a lot of limestone. So you will get a lot of minerality and chalk coming and I love that. Mm -hmm. But there's also a little bit of blossom, some white flowers, um, a lot of nice citrus aromas as well. Anything yeah. else you all are picking up? No. I was going to say on the nose, on my big Pinot glass here, because everything else is <clears throat> dirty, um, the, the nose is obviously much more apparent. And I definitely get the classic champagne nose bread dough you know all that mm -hmm. yeast. yeah the bread the yeast brioche yeah, yeah I, brioche, I was just yes. gonna say brioche i yeah. you know had a piece of brioche toast this mm -hmm. morning and i'm oh, wow. that a nice biscuity um flavor to it just love that with a glaze on it <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and uh i was also going to comment that i was very impressed with um, the creaminess and the really round body to this champagne. I mean, a, a lot of champagnes are, are far thinner in their flavor profile. Mm -hmm. You mentioned so many notes in there and they are all there. So it's really very flavorful and quite delicious. Yeah. And I was really happy that Misty was able to find it for us. Um, really easily, actually, yeah. as, you, as you mentioned, once we nailed it down. So that was great. Yeah. 
Alyssa, Can you tell us a little bit about the aging requirements for champagne? Because I always find that fascinating. Like, I mean, if you're picking up a bottle of champagne, like you're guaranteed, you know how long it's been aged, whereas like that varies in sparkling wine and other yeah. wines around the U.S. Of course. Well, you see the um, bottle that you have there, there's no age, there's no numbers, there's no year, meaning it's a non-vintage. So what happens there is that every year they they blend the champagne, the juices, in order to create um, that champagne. And the aging is a minimum of 14, uh, sorry, 15 months for non-vintage. Whereas for vintage, you have a year, it will take um, the minimum three years aging. Now, some champagne house will decide they wanna do it more, like 36 months, you have some champagne house that um, that do that, um, but those are the requirements. So those are the two different um, terms of aging champagne you will get. And when you look at like, like say like a Cremant de Bourguignon or, you know, something that isn't classified as an actual champagne, do they have to follow those same rules or for them, is it just sort of carte blanche and they can, you know, they age as long as they want? No, they have to follow the same rule. If they're going to do something that says méthode traditionnelle, that's like champagne, they have to follow the same rule. H however, you will have um, different, they will have different grapes. They will have different percentage of grapes they need to put. Champagne has a very strict rule in order for it to be champagne. Whereas the Cremant Bourgogne, um, even though they have to follow some rules in order for it to be, you know, the méthode traditionnelle, they have, they can, they have a little bit more leeway but not as much. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that's fantastic. Champagne is always just, it's so fascinating and it's so fun and it's so festive. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, Marsha and um, Sylvie, but in terms of like purchasing champagne, are there like, if you're, is there a certain methodology or process you should follow based upon the event or you know is it just you buy what you want because i go in and i'm always so intimidated like all <laughs> you know all like ponder do i buy a sparkling wine and you know for 20 or do i splurge on like a 40 or 50 dollars i mean is yeah. there any methodology that you put behind your purchasing behavior for champagne oh yeah of course and now we're only talking about champagne if we're only talking about champagne, um, I will say, for instance, a champagne made at 100% Chardonnay is good for an aperitif. It's good for entree appetizers. Now, you're going to go a little bit heavier during the meal. You can have, like, pongli, even something with more Pinot Noir, because the Pinot Noir gives a little roundness to, um, to champagne. And if you go to a mean course, something a little bit more heavier, go for vintage champagne because that's rounder, it's richer, and it will stand up better with, with a heavier food. So that's how I would proceed. Um, oh, I you go with the, the lighter champagne at the beginning and, and the heavier champagne, more full body champagne at the end. I love that, because sometimes we think of champagne just as a, you know, a starting aperitif, yeah. like start, you know, just to get your, your night going and maybe as, you know, it's, you eat that with the amuse-bouche, but it's so fantastic to hear, yeah. or the cheese plate. It's fantastic to hear you say that, you know, you can purchase champagne all the way through and drink it all the way through the meals. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you ever go to Champagne, um, the region, you will see um, a lot of the restaurants there, they pair champagne with everything, even with breakfast. <laughs> That's one place I haven't been, but I definitely need to put that on my um, travel list. <laughs> a little, a little uh, champagne with your eggs Benedict. Oh, it, it would, with croissant and cheese is beautiful. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, just thinking about that because I didn't have lunch today. You just got me going right there. So that's a great one. And that kind of led me into the next point was with your wine and Culinary Travel Insider uh, Award. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about more about pairings. I mean, you just mentioned several, but I was thinking, well, Thanksgiving is coming up. Um, you know, I, I can see drinking this particular champagne through the entire meal. <laughs> and why not? <laughs> But I, I mean, I loved your, I loved your suggestions for which direction to go. And 
and what types of champagne to enjoy through different courses of a meal. That was a big favorite. Do you have any particular favorites that you love to pair with the pomeroy? Oh yeah, the pomeroy. Okay, cheese. I love cheese. I mean, heads down. I just love that. But you know, you have some appetizers that have some fat. Um, you know, chips, truffle chips. It's magnificent. Um, you have what? Well, yeah, the French fries. You know, the traditional fat. Um, a little bit fat food is really nice with that champagne. And what I would suggest is having a little bit of earthiness, anything that comes from the ground. You know, you have the mushrooms, you have uh, truffles, onions, and things like that really um, pulls out the aromas from that champagne. So that's my direction I will go. Yum. Yeah. I, I always pair it with sushi as well. Like if I'm, oh, yes. I just am a sushi, like takeout queen. So I love to pair absolutely a nice bottle of champagne with some sushi. And you know, you know, ladies, what's good, what we can do is that if you have oysters, you pour the champagne in the oysters and you eat it. It's delicious. Oh, yeah. You sold me at that. that sounds, <laughs> sounds, sounds yeah. fantastic. Yeah. I'm like on a roll today with the Sex in the City and all these movies that we we that I've watched recently. But you, when you were just telling me that story, you know, when you started out about you know the female powerhouses of champagne, I just um, fell back and recollected on you know the, my three most important books that I've read in my wine career. Like they're pretty funny, but they're the first books that I stumbled across. Um, the first one was Karen McNeil's Wine Bible. Um, the second was Evan Goldstein's um, Perfect Pairing. And then the third, which is hilarious, is um, Natalie McLean's Her Red, White, and Drunk All Over, which I think it came out like in the mid-2000s, but there was a whole chapter dedicated, and it's very comical, it's very Sex in the City-ish, it's her take, she's like trying to tell folks not to take wine so seriously like just yeah. have fun with it yeah. and she's a master psalm so she's like obviously really educated in the field but it was so fun and she wrote this amazing chapter about the champagne houses and the um the female influence and you know just set a really good picture in my mind and you just brought me back there and now i, I definitely need to go back and revisit yeah yeah so, i yeah go ahead no, uh, the other thing I was just going to say is real quick, uh, Misty, uh, uh, Lisa is waiting for you to let her in. Um, so you can do that. And I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew we really wanted to, to focus a whole bunch on champagne, among other things, because Sylvie is a champagne master designation from, uh, from the French Wine Society. So I really, I've known very... I'm not sure who else I know besides Sylvie who has the master designation because um, you have to get it <clears throat> over the pond, I believe. Um, you yeah, it's a French organization, yeah. Yeah, so it's not one here and, and it's just it's so unique. Uh, and I think we've, we've got Lisa in here. Hello, Lisa, are you with us? Hi, yes, sorry I'm late to the party. That's okay. Lisa Adams-Walter joins the crew for the podcast and radio show today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for I, I hope you get a chance to uh, enjoy your champagne because we've been learning a lot about it from Sylvie. I haven't. And one question I have, and it may not be either of these, is which glass? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about that. Or I've seen these other glasses that are like, you know, that are larger, you know, more like a, mm -hmm. um, maybe a Sauvignon Blanc Probably glass. Anyone. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, um, and I'm sorry I missed that, but I, this tends to be my everyday glass. I keep four of these in my freezer, so they're nice and chilled at yeah. all times. <laughs> my Riedel, I don't want, it's a little more fragile, so I keep that up in the cupboard. So I kind of feel like this is a more of a celebration glass. So I'm totally. going with this. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mentioned. Yeah. Okay, good. I fell in love with um, the Shot Switzel, so that's what I'm drinking with, but it's a little different of a design, like it has more of a wider base, but then it still has all the flute characteristics. So 
I um, found we stumbled across these a few years ago, but I'm in love with them. And Very have, pretty. Like, Very lovely. So uh, what we didn't talk about, Sylvie, we haven't yet talked about your whole background, how you got interested in champagne, but maybe we should, maybe we should back up a little further and let you tell us how, how you stumbled onto wine, got interested on it, especially since you shared with us that this was the first champagne that um, you really got, you, that you really were able to buy that was like adult champagne. Yes. You know, not, the, <laughs> not the cooks. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, um, and the other stuff. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your, how you got interested in this and, and how it all took off for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? Um, with my first job, I worked in Paris, and it takes an hour and 30 minutes just to drive to Champagne. And with my roommate, that's what we did. Um, so time to time on weekends, we would just go and um, drive the day. We didn't have too much money, so we couldn't stay the evening in a hotel. So we would just drive up and taste Champagne and come back. And, you know, as time goes by, I just got very interested in it. And Finally, it was something that I drank more often than uh, than other than other wines. So it was it just came natural. <laughs> <laughs> so there there's um, there's one of the myths about champagne is that it's only for super fancy celebrations. Is that a complete myth? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can yeah. drink champagne for any occasion. You can have champagne for meal. Um, you know you this so many different styles and, and champagne um, brands out there. You can really match it with a lot of different foods, um, different celebration. I mean, there's no end to, end to it. Very cool. I, I love hearing the story behind it. So uh, real quickly, there's some, there's some little secret tips I know, and, and I'm probably going to get some of these wrong, but I thought, Sylvie, you could help either dispel the rumors or um, provide some secret sommelier knowledge. I know you're also, of course, a, a certified specialist of wine. And um, there's some tricks that we all learned recently, and I want to see what you think of them. For instance, if you don't finish your bottle of champagne on the same night, can you still keep it for another night? But who does that? But anyway. <laughs> that was a perfect response. You had to finish it in one night. Yeah, absolutely. If you have the right, um, um, they call that bouchon, um, how you call that, the stopper. If you have the correct stopper, yes, of course, exactly. Yeah, I do keep it for two, three nights. Yeah, why not? All right, good, good to know. We also heard recently a little trick that you can do is throwing a spoon into the bottle or your container to help keep the carbonation alive. What do you think of that one? Um, I tried it, didn't work. However, um, you know, um, the trick if you want the bubbles to be very more lively, you just scratch your glass a little bit and um, it will, the bubbles will just keep going. All right, that's, yeah. that's a good one. Uh, another one I've heard is that unlike still wines, you shouldn't refresh the glass until you've really finished that glass, that you shouldn't be mixing the somewhat warmer yeah. wine with the cold wine. Is that one yeah. true? I, yes and no, I agree with that in a sense that all depends on how fast you, you, you drink the wine. Um, and how cold it is. Sometimes you can refill because it's just not that long. But if you're someone who's indulging and taking your time, I will just wait till I finish the glass and then we pour another one. Okay. So yeah. it depends. Good, all, all good and excellent tips to use. Um, I don't know, did, ladies, did you have some questions for Sylvie on this? I do. You wanna go first, um, Misty? You can go. I've been talking okay. away. So go okay. ahead. Okay. So you just joined so us. I am a huge sparkling wine and champagne aficionado. I have so much to learn. I don't know that much. But one of my personal beliefs is that if I start to have a little bit of a sore throat or something like that, if I drink sparkling wine, it's 
a bit of an elixir or, or like a, a cure-all for me. And I don't know if I'm imagining it, but it always makes me feel better. I feel like it wards off illness. Um, yeah. Is there any truth to that? Oh, absolutely. I, I believed it and I've done it. So, you know what? Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> You're going to think, Sylvie, I'm going to adopt gonna that. Friends. I, we're gonna yeah, be friends, Sylvia. I, I can tell. <laughs> I'm gonna adopt that as well, Lisa. That sounds like a fantastic um, yeah, cure. All the time, I'm like, it doesn't matter, it, and it's worked for me many times. I think there are health benefits, and I, I wasn't sure if it was psychosomatic, but I, I don't see why not, right? Yeah, why not? Well, I mean, you you think about all of the, you know, even the health and wellness trends for fermented drinks and all the kombuchas and everything out there. I mean, it's by no means a kombucha or anything like it, but it still has the fermented characteristics. So, yeah. mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's very good news for me. <laughs> I'm always fascinated and I did, I was fortunate enough to have gone through a, um, a champagne class, um, aboard a cruise that I took with my family, um, this last January. And, um, I was fascinated by, you know, just the little champagne etiquette that can really help and really elevate, you know, the ease and the simplicity of actually serving and enjoying champagne, you know, just the simple tilt of a bottle when you're opening it at a certain mm -hmm. angle. Can you tell listeners about that? Like, I just find that fascinating. Oh yeah. You know, champagne bottle has a lot of pressure. It's just this, just as the same as a, a tire, you know, it's, it's, it's really powerful. So when you, um, tilt it to 45 degrees, it helps um, protect your, the people around you <laughs> so you don't aim at them. And it also a way for the, um, to keep the pressure in check. So when you pour, um, you will have the bubbles and you know it will not be spurring all over the place. Yeah, I love that. The service, yeah. the service etiquette of champagne, I think is fascinating. Yeah. And even the bottle architecture and design is, yeah. you know. Supports. Well, back in the day, yeah, you know, the champagne uh, bottle is was in, kind of invented by the English, actually, because they were the ones who uh, knew about glass making and they're the one who introduced it um, to, to Europe, more or less for, for wines. And then the champagne um, region adopted because they used to have champagne in regular wine bottles and it used to explode all over the wet, all over the place. So um, they start using the champagne bottle because it just helps more the pressure of the, um, of the wine in the bottle. I also was told and heard once that the, um, the actual brute the Champagne Brut actually came, um, the French, you know, they prefer a sweeter um, version of Champagne, but then they developed and created the Brut to appeal more to the British yes. um, taste. Is that it's true? And absolutely. In fact, um, Louise Pomerich is the first one to create the Brut Champagne. <sighs> and she is and the it was first like... Wasn't it like a play on it because they always go back and forth and they have this rivalry and like mm -hmm. one thinks they're superior than the other. So then the French said, we'll call it the Brut the because it's... They're, yeah, they're like Brutes. Yes. <laughs> and they call it, yeah. And um, yeah, the, because Champagne used to be a dessert wine, very sweet. And the English, this, um, they evolved, their taste evolved and they wanted something less sweet. And Louise Pomery, the businesswoman that she is, decided to create the first champagne with no sugar. Oh my goodness. And, wow. Yeah. Fascinating. That's, wow. You chose really wisely, Sylvie, with Thank like, you. <laughs> the, you know, the right one to focus in on as, as like your key one. And I'm so glad you brought this up because I'm hoping, since we haven't talked about this on the show before, um, if you will spell out for our listeners um, how to understand which champagnes are sweet down to really close to bone dry, because there's a very specific system, but many people may not know what that is. Yeah, sure. In champagne, you have different levels, uh, six or seven levels of sweetness. So brut is in, uh, it's in the middle a little bit. It's, um, it means that it has 12 uh, grams of sugar per liter or less. 
and then you have the extra brut, which is a, even drier, and then you have natu, uh, which has zero dosage, zero um, sugar. So those are the ones that are the driest. And as you go higher, you're going to have sweeter wines because there's more sugar. So there's a sparkling wine called Dou, D-O-U-X, that's like 50 grams uh, per liter. Mm -hmm. And then under that is Demi Sec, which is more popular here in the U.S. You're going to see Demi Sec. And I like, I like Demi Sec because it's not too sweet, but it's really nice and, and crisp. And that's around 32 to 50 grams of sugar per liter. So those are the different levels of champagne, but the most common is the Brut. And you'll see this on all the labels for champagne. They, it's right there in the front. So you yes. know what the sugar, if there is sugar, you'll know what the level is by yeah. that label. Exactly. So, yeah, it's here, uh, Misty put forth, you know, this is Brut Royale. Um, does the Royale have any associated designation to it or is that just a, a fanciful name? Yeah, well, it was meant for the um, royalty in England when she created that brute. And also you see the color, the blue color, that's the color of the kings. So oh, it's yeah. a play on, it's like Bleu Royale, it's a play on Brut Royale. Um, so yeah, cool. it has, and it was dedicated for the kings. Um, back then. Very nice. Very nice. It is, it's a gorgeous looking yeah. bottle too, I have to say. It is, yeah. and I love the blue cage. I was so intrigued by that when I took the, the foil off the top and I saw the blue wire. Yeah. I thought, this is really attention to detail. It's really cool. Yeah, I what I like about, oh, you see the Grenoble, that's the name of her husband. The only Grenoble, that was her husband's name. So she's kind of, they kind of kept both of them, um, you know, alive with the bottles. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Very nice. The only thing then, uh, 1836 was when the house was founded. Like that is just unfathomable for yeah. us right. Americans. <laughs> no. Yes. We're not it was amount of first because um, we now was the first sparkling wine. Um, I think it's 1729 and then came others. Because before that, it was all still wines, and then champagne became very popular. And Marsha, you brought up a great point, and Lisa, about the wire cage, because as a marketer, and you know, I work closely with the winery that I work with for all of our package design, and I am just, anything French, I'm just like, sold. Like, everything that they do has like the greatest attention to detail. I mean, even the folding on this foil cap, like I can tell that like the winemaking team, like they directed a certain yes. location of where every single crease mm -hmm. was gonna go in this cap foil. And mm -hmm. the texture in the foil, I mean, there are things that we as marketeer marketers like, you know, will obsess about. Um, and you know, there, I mean, this is really what defines the French culture is that insane level and attention to detail. Yeah, good point. I loved it. I, just as I was opening it, I mean, you felt like it was something extra special, which was really, really nice. There's yeah, and the, the price value. Royal too, which is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, the royal blue is very pretty. I, I love that color as well. Yeah. And the one thing we, we didn't mention, of course, that it goes across um, all champagne and I think all cremel, but, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, is there is there is always six turns of the wire to unwind it to remove the yep. cage. Yep. So for listeners who may not know that, you, you can practice on your next bottle. There's always exactly six. six, six yeah. <laughs> so in case you're wondering if you're getting close or you still don't have the bottle turned away from your friends and you don't want the cork to fly off into their eye, um, <laughs> Make sure by the second turn that you, you're keeping safety in mind. Yeah. So, really cool stuff. Well, we also wanted to talk, Sylvie, about your fascinating and highly adventurous career. So you went from the French Caribbean to Paris, where you spent a whole bunch of time and obviously a whole lot of studies um, yeah. since you got your 
Champagne Master designation there from the French Wine Society. Um, what, what spurred you to head over to America and Napa Valley? Okay. Well, I came from, um, well, I met my, my husband and he's American. So there you go. <laughs> uh, I came for love. <laughs> very nice. Very cool reason. And uh, what, what have been your observations about um, being a woman in the wine industry um, you know, we, we try not to sit like the, there's this thing that we always try to say, no woman who's a winemaker wants to be called a woman winemaker. They just want to be called a winemaker. And the same is probably true for any job that you hold in the wine industry. You don't want to be known as the woman blah, blah in the company. But every once in a while, something happens and we go... I just got singled out because of my gender in some way or another. So I'm not necessarily asking for some sort of story on that, but what have been the things that have stuck out for you in your career that kind of brought that to your attention? Well, you know, sometimes when I went to study, I would be just a few women. Well, back 10 years ago, just, we'll just have few women who um, would attend um, certifications. Also going to tastings and going to tasting in Europe, you know, you're gonna have older men there um, and you're coming in, you're all young. And <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you'll kind of stand out as well. Um, but I never let that um, bother me. I, sometimes I like to stand out, why not, you know? Good for you. When you, when you first sort of did your ventures out to the Champagne region, you know, probably knowing not as much as you know today, like, did you ever feel intimidated or felt like you were out of place or, you know, did you feel like, you know, so invited and open and this is for me? Yeah, maybe a little in the beginning, but um, coming from a French background, you learn really quickly. <laughs> To, to adapt to that situation. And, and that's the reason why studying and being informed and knowing is very important. And whenever I try to go in a situation, I always try to prepare. So um, I might have, but I was young, what, 20 years ago? <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, yeah, it depends on the situation. But today it's, um, it's just, it's just having fun and meeting people, connecting, um, supporting other women. That's what it's all about today for me. Have you came across any like strong mentors or um, anything in your career, male, female, whatnot, that have really shaped or guided or directed you to a certain path or area? Well, you know, I, I think in my, um, in college, I had a teacher, she was really someone who speaks, who spoke her mind, and, and she was say, if you want something, just go for it, no excuse, and that was it. She was just always telling us that, and she never really um, sugarcoated her words or anything, but I think I really liked that because she was someone who um, I can go to and ask questions. She said, you want it, go for it, and that was it, no, no excuses. So, um, yeah, I think that was the, my best um, advice I got. That's great. Cool. No, that's great. I, I admire your credentials. I admire everything that you've done. Um, specialization you. in, you know, a certain area is extremely impressive. And, you know, a lot of studies and dedication go into that. So, yeah, I love to study, as you can see. I just love studying. You can certainly tell with the number of designations, let's see here, Certified Specialist of Wine, that's what we all know as CSWs, Certified Wine Educator, which is CWE, we already talked about the Champagne Master designation, and you've also got the WSET 3 with Merit, very good. All of these require a great deal of study about um, the wine business and, and learning and understanding wines. Um, so they're obviously important to you. Um, what, would, what would you wanna say to a woman who's just coming out of SSU or UC Davis 
uh, or any of these schools with wine programs and they're wondering do I need do I need to get those additional degrees in addition to my bachelor's or my master's or whatever? Yeah, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to be a sommelier, you want to be in hospitality, the credentials really do work. If you want to be more in a wine production, this, this certification that I have is not necessary. It's we more UC Davis wine uh, wine making programs will be more important for that. So it all depends on what you want to do. But I always um, believe that more knowledge, the more power, and you have more opportunities like that. So um, if you want to go and you have to decide where you want to go, what direction you want to go, what field you want to get in, in the wine industry, and then you go from there. You make your research, ask questions, look look for someone who have already those certificates and see how they're doing and what they can tell you about it. So yeah, just go for it. I have a question. Um, when you, with all those different designations, do you have to keep up with it, earn credits to keep current, or once you earn it, do you have it forever? Yeah, once what, you earn it, you have it, yeah. Okay, so it's not like an evolving thing like some of other professional designations yeah. where you have to do so many a year, you have it forever. Yeah. But one thing that is fascinating, um, Lisa, because I just completed my um, WSET 2, and mm -hmm. um, one of the things that was fascinating to me is with each level of the WSET training, it is intensely um, more yeah. complex and requires travel and it requires... I mean, you have to pretty much dedicate your life um, to it for, you know, however many times, however, whatever that time period you're going to set for yourself to complete it, like you're fully immersed and you're dedicated and, you know, it might involve traveling to the different wine regions, but it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Totally wow. Right. That's amazing. Good for you too. Oh. Yeah, during during COVID and shelter in place, there was never a dull <laughs> moment. And I'm doing that, doing some Google certifications, and um, you spend a lot of time at my computer these days. So I have to ask Sylvie right now. Um, you're at Cake Bread Cellars, um, working in guest experiences. What's it like? I I I can't even begin to imagine what the pivot was like when COVID shut everything down. Uh, tell, just tell us a little about what you're doing and what you've learned about how to make guest experiences work in the era of COVID. Oh yeah. You know what, being the assistant guest experience manager here, my role is to make sure the customers are happy and make sure the staff is happy. So we do, um, I create a lot of training um, programs for the staff um, in terms of hospitality and wine, but I also put in place um, programs for um, the guests, um, anything from the experience design from the time they get out the car to when they leave. Um, and what I love here about Cake Bread is that they're dedicated to customer service. So we go through a lot of training for that and um, we keep up with the latest um, trends in order for us to be, you know, up to par <laughs> with, with other wineries. Mm. Well, tell, I don't know if this was discussed, but tell us about the new tasting hall and tasting rooms and, you know, what visitors can experience at Cake Bread. Oh yes, we have nine different tasting rooms. All of them have their own personality. We all do different um, tasting experience in there. At this time, we're doing experience outside. If, um, if you've been to Cake Bread, you see we have a really big area. Um, so we do all the tastings outside. Um, we have different areas, the production areas. We have vineyards. So our main goal is to uh, immerse the customer into cake bread, have them feel that they are welcome, they're tasting great wines, and they get to know um, what we do and who we are. So that's how the guest experience is based. Nice. And um, for people who are unable to travel for whatever reasons, are you also doing forms of virtual tastings? Yes, and I'm in charge of all the virtual tastings and I um, 
take care of um, the logistics, the wines, and also train the hosts in uh, for virtual tasting. So we really do um, not only regular virtual tasting, but we do cooking virtual tastings mm. as well. Mm. Cooking classes, um, a lot of other things, yeah. That's Love exciting. Yeah. I love the culinary components and the pairing components. Um, that's fantastic and it's great to see them incorporated into the virtual tastings. Yeah. Yeah, we have a chef on, we have a resident chef and he's wonderful. And um, he just, we, we just love the classes that he do virtually or in person. It's just really great. And people love it because as, as he's cooking and showing what to do, he also have the wine and he talks about the wine. And so it's, it's just really, really nice. And during COVID, have you found it, um, Cake Bread has just such a great following for um, membership as well. Like I know you guys have just a, a, a great wine club and great offerings, but have you, like how have you guys been pivoting um, to serve those customers, you know, that are used to coming up three or four times a year for like annual pickup parties or things of that sort? What have you guys been doing? Well, you know what? We resort to um, virtual tastings, so that's very popular. Number two, because of protocol, we only can do tasting outside, so we have a really big area, really huge area, so we can accommodate people. So if we have our customers or my members, they want to come, they have to make a reservation, and we will make sure that they enjoy their stay. So we have the room, and we have the capacity, we have the people. Fabulous. Right. Yeah. Really interesting. And on top of all of this stuff that we've been talking about, you also volunteer to help other women in the wine industry with the Wine Women Organization and serving on the board of directors. Um, is there anything that you want to tell our listeners about serving on the board or, or what's going on? It's obviously really difficult right now because there's no in-person networking and getting together. Um, uh, what would you like listeners to know about Wine Women? That we're putting in place a lot of nice um, um, projects and programs um, that are coming up. And, you know, we have a very dynamic president. Um, so we are a monthly, we get together and we try to see what we're going to do in, in order to make Wine Women um, in 2021. You know, when everything is <laughs> normal, uh, we can um, enjoy and connect with other people. So. It's a work in progress, but um, we're, we're having fun while doing it. Okay, cool. Well, that's important. Having yeah. fun is important in this industry. What keep, it's what keeps us all going in yeah. a very big way. Um, I, I, I don't have any more questions. I don't know if Sully <laughs> has questions for us because she could certainly ask us, but do you guys have any other questions for Sylvie uh, and her life in and adventures in wine. Oh my wine. god. My, my, do... my question is, I mean, you've lived in these amazing places from the French Caribbean to Paris and then now to, you know, Napa wine country. Um, and I'm just curious to find out, you know, what what are you finding that you really love about the Napa Valley? And what are some characteristics that really set it's it apart from some of the other places where you've lived and worked? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, Napa Valley is, is a small, smaller community compared to Paris or, you know, other places. And I just like um, the whole um, wine community, how people are uh, tight knit, you know, uh, I really like that. I like the fact that um, it's competitive. It can hold on its own in the world. So they can be pretty much very good wines. And I like the fact that, you know, it's, it's practically in California and I always love California. So what a better place to enjoy wine and enjoy California. So I think Napa was just a really nice place for, for me. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. I, I find those same similarities with Napa. You know, I live and reside in Sonoma County and, you know, cut my teeth in, in wine country. I grew up in Sonoma County, you know, left for five years, came back and started working in Sonoma County, yeah. which is very diverse and very different from Napa. Um, 
but was afforded the opportunity to, you know, represent some of the wineries on the Napa side, but I really didn't understand and really have a true appreciation for Napa Valley until I started working there about five years ago, like the close knit um, community. I mean, it's, I love, you know, Sonoma County, that's my heart, but, um, but Napa is a very special place with um, just an amazing rich history and resources Mm-hmm. that it really leverages to the fullest. Like I am amazed by the organizations in the Napa Valley. They are just world-class. Yeah. And Sonoma That's County awesome. as well, but it's a little bit more spread out and a little bit more diverse and more difficult to, um, you know, get everyone on marching to the same tune. Cause we have, I mean, so many different growing areas and, you know, different concerns. We also have agriculture. So it's, um, it's, it's different for sure, but yeah. it's interesting. You know, it's funny. I never really realized it, Misty, but we're the flip flop of each other because my family's been in Napa Valley since the 1930s. Oh, wow. I was I was raised here. Sadly for me, they didn't go into the wine business. <laughs> I'm the first one to go into the wine business. Um, but then I lived in Sonoma County for 10 years, and I and I did and continue to do a lot of work over there. So I'm the same with you. I feel like I have a foot in both counties. And, and I have my heart in both places. My daughter was born in the town of Sonoma. You know, I'm back living in the Napa Valley as, you know, more than 10 years ago, I, I moved back. But it's, it's very interesting, you know, and, and in light of what's just happened with the wildfires, it's like we're wine country. You know, there's less of Napa Sonoma, I think, in a lot of ways. And in a very odd way, I think it's brought our communities a bit closer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um... One of the greatest things I observed immediately with the wine industry when I moved here, and I've, I've spent about equal time in, in both uh, counties, in both valleys, is uh, everybody supports one another in the wine industry. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes harvest time, people will share equipment and, you know, tank space and, and whatever they need to do. Oh, you need an extra bin. I've got another bin in the back. And and there's all kinds of support systems there and people, and that is, that is probably just touching on the very light edges of really the, the very serious support that people give one another in this industry. So it's a great part of it. So Sylvia, I think we should give you the final word. What would you like our listeners to know uh, about, uh, about you and or, you know, about where, you know, your hopes and dreams for the next three to five years in the wine industry in your career. You know what? My dream would be to um, to be to have a wine club, a champagne wine club and happy ladies just come and enjoy it. That's been my, my dream. And it's my retirement job as well. <laughs> just talk about champagne every day. Okay. I think you can sign us up. We're, we're okay. there. We're, we're ready. <laughs> Cheers, ladies. Thank you so much. Cheers. Great. And Misty, thank you so much for being on the show today. Sylvie, thank you for guesting on the show today. It's been great to catch up with you uh, because it's been a while, obviously, since we've seen each other in of COVID. And listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today to Wine Women Radio. We really appreciate your time. Hope everybody has a fantastic week and evening and all those good things and and cheers and have another glass of champagne. Cheers, Cheers. guys. Thank you. you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye.